precursor of fentanyl chemicals, right, coming into the U.S. and then transiting to Mexico, as strange as that sounds. Uh, a lot of the chemicals go directly from China to Mexico. Right. They also transit the United States by air freight and go to Mexico. So huh. are there people synthesizing fentanyl in the United States? Yeah. Yes, there are. Yeah. But, but the reality is that any amount of finished fentanyl uh, that's not coming into the United States from Mexico is really inconsequential to our problem. Huh. The issue is the vast quantities of fentanyl that are coming into the U.S. from Mexico right now in the form of pills and powder. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Special agent in charge, Bill Bodner, DA, Los Angeles Field Division. Thank you for joining founder of Pain, Flint Anderson, and myself, Jason LaChance, on Don't Hide the Scars. Thank you for inviting me, guys. You got it, Bill. We're so glad you're here, man. Thanks yeah, for coming. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I've seen you do so many different uh, press-related stuff, but one of the interesting things that really caught me about your career, and we've been exploring further with some guests, is the occurrences shortly after NAFTA, and that's kind of when your career started. Right. What did you kind of see as a change in influx at that time? You know, it's, it's, so people often ask me about smuggling over the border. And, you know, my question back to them is, when do you think smuggling over the Mexico-U.S. border started? And the answer is about 15 minutes after it was declared a border. You know, um, I, don't know I don't know when prohibition was, 1919? Yeah, 1920, 20, yeah, guess 20s. what? There was uh, smuggling of tequila across yeah, the border. So, so smuggling a, of contraband across that border has always been a huge issue. Um, NAFTA, to some extent, did have an effect because we saw more smuggling in commercial vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, tractor trailers carrying freight. Um, definitely, when I started the job, it was cocaine, and right. that's, that's how a lot of it came across the border. Drugs mixed with legitimate goods coming across the border in tractor trailers. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, I, I, I even remember those days, mm -hmm. you know, where that was, you know, when I'd watch the news, you know, and that's that's where they'd find them. They'd find them in the wheel wells, yep. you know, of, yep. of, the, of the trucks and cars. And, yeah, it was just, uh, and they were getting a lot across. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can only imagine how much is getting across today with fentanyl. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. I mean, that's the number one challenge I think we face in law enforcement right now is the volume of the drug. Uh, more than anything else, because fentanyl, it takes so little to kill you that there's really no room for error on, on anyone's part, especially right. law enforcement's part. So dealing with that volume, uh, that much of a deadly substance is uh, is super challenging right now. Well, you know, and I hear that there's like, again, I could be wrong, but 70,000 vehicles a day are crossing that border going going back and forth. So so here's here's the reality and this is data that Department of Transportation publishes. So it's on the it's open, you know, on the internet. Right. Um, the last time I looked at it was for May, so a couple months ago, May 2023, one border crossing in California, the San Isidro crossing, yeah. right? 1,345,000 vehicles coming from south to north, not both ways, just coming into the country. So take an average, guys. That's, that, so that's a vehicle every two seconds yeah. on average. So when I hear people talk about shutting down the border, and, and it's a discussion, right? It's sure, a legitimate sure. discussion. That, but I need to know what that means to you or what that means to the people saying it. What does that mean? Does that mean we spend 10 minutes searching every one of those 1.3 million cars? Because if it does, 
after one hour, that line to cross the border is now nine hours long. Right. right. And there's people that live in northern Mexico that work in the United States that, sure. that cross the border every single day. So, you know, j- just the magnitude of vehicles crossing that border, and that's where the smuggling is happening, in passenger cars and commercial trucks. Yeah. No, I was I was going to say, you know, I mean, how, how, how do we stop that? How do we even check that? I mean, you could put 100,000 agents, you know, yeah. it, uh, along that border, and you still wouldn't be able to get to all the vehicles. A lot of it is really uh, reliant on technology. Yeah. You know, x-rays, um, artificial intelligence to track smuggling networks, the vehicles they're, they're using, who is in those vehicles, what other vehicles those per- those people drive. Um, AI in helping identify potential smuggling vehicles is something that uh, is relied upon heavily, and it will be even more going forward. And and uh, you know, it, it at 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 the end of it, though, it takes human beings to search. It takes yeah. human beings to search to recover the drugs, to document the evidence, et cetera. So so that's another limiting factor. What about the situations where it's a lot of the the precursor chemicals? I mean, we Flint and I watched was it the benzo dope documentary mm-hmm. where we were seeing it? You know, people ordering the precursor chemicals yeah. on the dark web. Are we seeing a lot of that coming so, across borders too? Or so it's interesting. We're seeing now uh, precursor fentanyl chemicals, right, coming into the U.S. and then transiting to Mexico. As strange as that sounds, uh, a lot of the chemicals go directly from China to Mexico. Right. They also transit the United States by air freight and go to Mexico. So are there people synthesizing fentanyl in the United States? Yes, there are. But but the reality is that any amount of finished fentanyl uh, that's not coming into the United States from Mexico is really inconsequential to our problem. The issue is the vast quantities of fentanyl that are coming into the U.S. from Mexico right now in the form of pills and powder. Okay. Yeah, I was really curious about that because we were watching, you know, and there's a lady, gosh, what is she, second generation second dealer? Second generation drug dealer. You know, and was, yeah. was talking about how, you know, her mom did it and how she's mixing it and everything else. So I was curious if that was an impactful problem. But I mean, so that's kind of from that description, what you're saying, kind of like a mom and pop type sure. operation. Yeah. And yeah, that does impact. You, you know what I mean? Sure but does. it's not, you know, we're focusing on, our strategies kind of focus on where the most harm is done. And the most harm is from Sinaloa cartel, Jalisco New Generation cartel, these groups, criminal groups in Mexico that are bringing a million pills into uh, California across the border at a time. I mean, that's a significant amount of fentanyl when you consider that uh, 60% of them right now, give or take, according to our laboratory testing, 60% of them contain two milligrams or more of fentanyl. So you can see the danger that these big organizations are creating here. Yeah. You know? And for those that don't understand that, two milligram mark is is the mark of overdose. Yeah. You know, you go, you go to that two or over it, then your chances of overdose become even greater. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so can you, can you tell us, how how much impact does the, the 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 folks that are just coming over the border? What what role do they play in a lot of this? And is it true that the cartels are are actually targeting people that just want to come into the United States to bring it over? So here's the thing: is you can there's no absolutes in drug trafficking, right? Like whatever whatever smuggling method you can think of in your wildest imagination is probably happening. Um, but again, we're focused on where how a majority of the drugs are crossing the border. Majority of the drugs right now, fentanyl, methamphetamine, the synthetic drugs that are harming people, uh, passenger vehicle, commercial truck. Are people carrying, walking across the border with drugs? Yes. Sure. 
um, it's not to the magnitude of the other things. So how does that migrant, uh, I don't know what you want to call yeah, it, th that migrant sure. issue, how does that affect the drug issue? The, the only way it would affect it really is by diversion of resources. Mm -hmm. There's a limited amount of resources, federal agents. If you're diverting them to handle that issue, then they're not working the drug issue. And to some extent, you know, I don't know to how great an extent, but to some extent that is going on right now. Sure. So as much like maybe in the, you know, I'm sure people have seen it in documentaries or, or you know, recreations, whatever it is, a lot of the drug meals, cocaine is the condoms and swallowing it, things like that. So they, I mean, they're going to find methods yeah. at the end of the day. That's just the reality. Yeah. So they're going to find methods, but they're also going to use the most reliable methods that are working that can get the largest volume of drugs across the border. And we have to be cognizant that as we address one issue, it's almost like holding a bubble underwater, right? So let's say we have, uh, we could instantly search every car at the ports of entry by through whatever means. We have the ability to do that now. What's going to happen? Boats. We're going to see more yep. ships coming up the coast of California then. We're going to see uh, an increase in tunnels. We're going to see more drones or small aircraft flying drugs across the border. So. Uh, there is no like one simple solution to it. It has to be all encompassing because whatever is whatever method uh, they encounter the least resistance, that's the way they're going to go. Sure. Well, you know, and and again, a lot of this boils down to money mm -hmm. because th they're they're going to take that chance. Yeah. Because the risk versus reward. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the risk versus reward and the profitability. I mean, you're talking about pills that cost I don't know 13 cents, yeah. like a fake oxy costs 13 cents to produce. Um, and they were selling up here two years ago for maybe twenty dollars. Right. Now it's down to a couple bucks. There's right. there's so many of them, but look at the profitability in that. And if you lose a hundred thousand of them, you'll make more. You know that's the that's the kind of one of the key points about why fentanyl and even methamphetamine is so devastating is they found a way to take Mother Nature out of the equation. Right. right? So you know to 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 grow. Uh, poppy plants in Mexico, you have to control, if you're a drug cartel, right, a specific uh, area of the country where the climate is conducive to, to right. growing that crop. And then you have to have gunmen there to protect it. And um, you have to have uh, laborers to work the fields, very labor intensive, you know, they're scoring the, 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 the poppies, scraping the gum. All those things require manpower, right. um, sometimes violence, whatever. A synthetic drug, you don't have to do any of that. You exactly. could you could have a, a fentanyl laboratory in a garage somewhere, and as long as you get the chemicals, you could move it to any part of the country that you control. So much easier to scale that type of business, um, and not rely on Mother Nature. Yeah. yeah. You know, when, and when you're talking about that, and I know I've talked to a couple other guys about this, the heroin issue as well. Um, do you do you actually see? heroin being non-existent in, yeah. the, in the next few years? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. In some cities in the United States, like I know Philadelphia right now, huge problem with uh, fentanyl xylazine right now. Right. Um, extremely difficult to find just regular heroin on the street. So, you know, tell me, what is the user going to do in that situation? Go to fentanyl. They're going to go to fentanyl. Every time. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's why, like, a lot of times I feel like, you know, like some of our harm reduction efforts are a couple years lagging. For instance, fentanyl test strips. Yes, if the, there were people three years ago that had the option of using 
heroin or fentanyl, right? Mm-hmm. That option, let's say that option existed a few years ago. A test strip to them might be valuable. They can make the determination, hey, I just want to stick to heroin, which I know I'm comfortable with, et cetera. Fentanyl test strips today, there's people are seeking out fentanyl. It's all that's right. available. So, yeah. so, you know, you're not testing it because you're happy to just get something. I hate to say it like that, but that's the reality. No, know? that is the reality. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting you said that because I, ha- I didn't think about that. Be- because when it comes to fentanyl test strips, I got to tell you, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm against them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm going to give you my reason. Because I think what we're doing is we're, we're sending the wrong message to our, to our kids. Right. Most of the time, it's people that have lost a child. And again, we all grieve mm-hmm. for that, that child mm-hmm. and that family. But what kind of message are we sending to little 15-year-old Billy here that says, oh, it's okay to do your cocaine on Saturday night. Right. Here's a fentanyl test strip just to make sure there's no fentanyl in it. Right. I mean, it's the devil on one shoulder, angel on the other yeah. kind of scenario. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting that, <laughs> okay, that scenario you brought up, though, talking about cocaine, because I've always said, and hey, I'm not, you know, I, I kind of probably have almost the same opinion you do about it, uh, but the person using cocaine wants nothing to do with an opiate. Correct. Um, If there's any value in a fentanyl test strip, that's where it is. Now, a couple things on that. When we see overdose clusters, like the the well-known case was in uh, Florida about two years ago, the West Point cadets that were Mm -hmm. on spring break and three or four of them overdosed. Um, we had uh, comedians in Venice, California, yeah. down in yeah. LA area. Three died, one survived. Again, cocaine. So, in that situation, for someone who's not seeking out the drug, will a fentanyl test strip take the what I call the deception piece out of it? Mm-hmm. I think it would. I think it would too. But, but I think one place we've been successful, and it's probably because because of the age group of cocaine users now. Like I, I. And again, no absolutes, right? But I classify like the Coke user as maybe the recreational drug user. And in where in the in the LA area that I'm familiar with, that's someone who's you know 30s, 40s. Uh, they don't think they have a drug problem. They're someone who's going to do Coke once a month, twice a month. They're so afraid of fentanyl now that they've actually stopped using fentanyl, and they've I mean I'm sorry, they're so, so afraid of cocaine now because of the potential mixture or mistaken for fentanyl that they've stopped using cocaine and they've moved to other drugs and that's caused a crash in the price of cocaine where the price is lower in LA now than it's been in probably 20 years and some places in the country it's the lowest it's ever been but that goes to show that we can reach that 30 40 something age group you know where we don't have the success is the teenage to 25 age group New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. I heard you gentlemen talk before we came in and sat down, you know, Flint speaks. I was telling you I go speak at high schools and they're aware of it. Mm -hmm. They're really aware 
But it's like they just don't care. Yeah. Or it's that mentality, Flynn, I'll talk about that youth. You know, I know I was indestructible at yeah. one point. Superman complex. So, so, yeah, here's the thing. Are we saying that drug experimentation by teenagers is new? No. <laughs> no. no. We're not saying that. But are we saying that drug, experiment, drug experimentation by teenagers has never been as dangerous as it is? Correct. To, right. So how do you get that message to kids that, that you know, one use of the drug could be all it takes. Yeah, you know, I was I was speaking at a gr- boys and girls club thing. That, I don't know a couple of weeks ago, and there was this one young lady. She was fourteen, and she just had attitude mm-hmm. all over the place. Like like this 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 old bastard has no idea what he's talking about. Right? Yeah, and I, I obviously I picked up on her, and I and I looked at her, and I said, "Listen, young lady, I, I said I'm not your parent. I said I'm not your teacher. I'm not your counselor. All right, and I'm not telling you what to do." I'm telling you what's going to happen to you if you decide to go down this road. Right. You know, because the message we have to send to kids is not don't do that. Right. Because they're going to go, you know what they're going to do. Yeah. Right. The other part of that piece, and this is what I've been battling with for 15 years, is getting the parents in the room, at least getting them in the room to start to listen to what we have to say. When we're dealing with parents, at least in this area, the best place to get to parents is through the school districts. And school districts will not, they will not even, they don't even want to hold a drug talk to their parents of their their schools. Yep. Especially the affluent areas. Especially the affluent areas. Hey, so it's, my experience is it's, it's, we're seeing progress in that area, but I can tell you 100% agree with what you just said. In 2019, we were doing a pretty big event for schools and many school districts said, hey, we don't want the parents to think there's a drug problem in the school. Right. If someone from DEA is talking, you know, we're not, we don't want to participate in that. Then there's three overdoses and they're calling us literally the next day, hey, can we, you know, partner or do some collaboration on something? So yeah, um, my, my ideal situation, and we have yet to pull it off yet, is uh, Monday night, you have a meeting after school hours with the parents Mm -hmm. and you say here's what's going to happen tomorrow we're going to have an assembly for the kids we're going to go over this is what we're going to explain to your children um educate the parents first then the next day you do it for the kids and then hopefully they can have a conversation at some point you know both being educated because what i used to tell parents is hey just talk to your children i was naive right because uh hey i'm a dea agent i have a somewhat of an idea what's going on. I thought everybody did, but I'm telling parents to talk to their kids and they have no clue no what's clue. happening. Yeah. So we have to educate the parents first, um, then educate the children and hopefully do something to facilitate the, then the one-on-one discussion between them absent us, right? That, that's my feel of what would work. Absolutely. You know, and, and locally, I got to say, we've done an amazing job. Our law enforcement here has done an amazing job of going and, and talking to these kids. We as a whole, this, this kind of group that we're in, have, have made this awareness piece mm-hmm. remarkable here. And, and I'm sure in other areas as, as, as well, too. But I think, I think where we fall short a little bit here is... is giving parents a better answer to 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 to, to some of the the tougher questions you know h- how do we get help for our son if if our son is going into this how do we give help to a 17 year old yeah when when there is maybe two to three treatment facilities in the state of California that will take minors hmm. 
uh, until everybody starts to understand how treatment works and how it works on the opioid addict and the meth, and by the way, methamphetamine, cocaine addicts, even if they have insurance, insurance does not cover that detox. Yeah, yeah. this is, um, man, an issue that comes up all the time with us is uh, treatment challenges. So my understanding is that if you're a teenager in California, you can walk out of a treatment facility at any time. Yes, is you it? can. You can. Yeah. And I mean, so the parents that I've talked to who have children who, have, who are in recovery now, uh, first thing was it was six-month inpatient treatment, which, in, again, I'm not an expert on this, but in my experience talking with parents, insurance companies are not paying for that. Will not. Will not pay for that. Problem number one. And guess where they're sending their children then? To Mexico to treatment facilities in yeah. Mexico where they can't leave, they're just not allowed to leave, and it's six-month treatment. You know, I mean, that's kind of ironic, right? That, 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 that the best we can do, the best we can do is 30-day in, in, you know, in, right. in, in-house treatment here. It's like, that's not even realistically giving, I, I don't know, you know better than me, you tell me, is that giving people the tools they need no. to, no. No, I don't Fla- think so. flat out, no, yeah. and insurance companies now, not, not in every case, mm-hmm. but in a lot of them. I would say maybe 60% of the cases now, they're knocking the time down to 17 to 20 days. Yeah. Not, not even the no. 30. It takes 30 days to get the drug out of one's system. Right. And, and, and for, for that brain to even start to try to comprehend what a counselor or a therapist is telling them. You know, it, it takes two to four years for sleep patterns to come back. Wow. It takes two to four years for dopamine to return to normal and serotonin levels to return to normal. So so how do how do we how do we expect, especially a young kid, when the human brain becomes fully mature at twenty six? Yep. That's without drugs and alcohol, yep. by the way. So so what kind of results are we expecting here? You know, so so we somehow we've got to get the insurance companies on board, but that's going to be a tough, yeah. tough road. No, but I, I see that as a major thing. And the other thing that was that I learned a lot about, and actually DEA is going through it right now. Uh, when when I first heard about it, I thought like, oh, this is like buprenorphine, right? Like, how come everybody's not on buprenorphine? You know, why isn't? Well. First, you have to get the fentanyl out of your system for a couple of days before you can take Suboxone. Got to be in with in full withdrawal. That's it. Right. Then you got to probably take Suboxone for I don't know a couple of weeks before getting uh, what is it Sublocate or whatever the injection is. Uh, or sublocate. Sublocate. So there's a little bit more to it than right. naive people like me. You thought you know I thought hey there's homeless people let's bring treatment out to them. It's not that simple though because Correct. it's it's really a nuanced. I learned. You already knew this. It's really a nuanced thing, and it's difficult uh, right now to make it work. It, it, it is. And, and the other part of the, the buprenorphine-methadone combination is, look, it, it took me two years to get off of methadone. Wow. And I did it myself. I did not. I mean, I was at. I went to a clinic, right? Yeah. But I, I, I went down. I, I can't. I think it was a milligram every two weeks. Right, they started me at 190 milligrams, which is the top legal dose, at least at the time it was. I was falling asleep at traffic lights. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> right. You talk about the constipation that goes with it. You talk about all the all the health issues that come along with long-term methadone and buprenorphine use. It's 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 amazing, and I've had basically all of them. Um, but you 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 what we're doing again? This is just my opinion, but what we're doing. Buprenorphine is a great drug 
to detox with and to use for about four weeks. After that four weeks, you are now dependent on Zaboxone, buprenorphine, whatever right. you want to call it. Right. And with methadone, do you know as a treatment, I own a treatment facility, we can't even take a methadone client into our treatment program because we can't have it on site. Right. DEA. Yep. Runs the show here yep, yep, with this, yep, right? Yep. So, so if even if we even if we took somebody, we would not take somebody unless they were at, at a minimum of twenty milligrams. And at twenty milligrams, it's going to take that person about four months to come off of it properly. When I decided to do it too fast, I went into a psychotic break. Wow. That happens constantly. The, 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 the buprenorphine and the methadone, buprenorphine's better than methadone. Mm -hmm. Methadone to me is the devil's drug. It's the hardest drug to come off of. By far, you can't do it on your own. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to you know, wean yourself down all the way right. with, with this. So again, in my opinion, we are now why should we? Why should we put a twenty-five-year-old on a drug that they're going to be strapped to? Mm -hmm. And you know the the rules with methadone. Mm -hmm. You you can't go to San Francisco if you're in San Francisco for the day and you forgot your methadone. You can't walk into a clinic right. and, meth, and and get it in San Francisco. Right. You're going to be going through withdrawals almost about maybe an hour after your last dose. If you don't, I mean, I'm sorry. It goes it goes about twenty-four hours for the dose, and then when you get to that twenty-fourth hour, if you don't have it, you're going to go into withdrawals. Right. You're going to leave San Francisco or wherever you're at right. to come home to get it. Wow! Because the rules are just too too tough. Right. And and do we want to strap a 25 year old to that yeah, for the rest of their That's life? That's the other question. Yeah. That's the other question. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary. I think the other issue, you know, Bill, as I was telling you, you know, when I go in and speak to the cl classrooms and the the kids, oh. That's what I was thinking of. I went golfing with my friend and his daughter the other day. Flint's been pushed me. You know, you do a lot with the recovery people. Do something for yourself. So yeah, I got out yeah, yeah, golfing. Absolutely. and I Good advice. His, Good advice. His daughter's a senior in high school, getting ready to go off, play golf in college. Wow. And I was asking her, you know, who's coming and talking at your school, you know, right. about the, the fentanyl issue? Nobody. Yep. But then her dad's like, well, tell me more. The child knew more yeah. than he did. Common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when I go and I talk to these kids and they're, you know, hey, thank you, Mr. Lachance. Really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your story. You've told me now I'm real educated. Then what's my solution to deal with these problems that I'm having? And that's the greatest thing that I'm seeing, as you know, as you and I know firsthand, why we're turning to the substances that underneath something. And I don't think there's a solid solution for them. Like, right. what if their parents are the problem? Well, they can't go into the school counselor yep. and tell the school counselor yep. and the parents can request the meeting notes. And, you know, that's what I'm seeing a lot of. I see that too, self-medication. I mean, yeah. a lot of times teenagers with self-medication is the huge issue and they can't speak with their parents about it or they, they feel they can't speak to their parents about it. So what do they do? Uh, they hear from a friend or they hear from their social group that um, um, Xanax can help them deal with the anxiety or the stress. They're not going to get a prescription from a doctor because they'd have right. to go with their parents. They turn to social media. They buy a pill that 100% of the time now is fake. Right. And a lot of times I'll, I'll say that to people. I'll say, hey, all the pills on the street are fake right now. And they're like, well, how can you say that? You can't say that. All I know is we test them. 
Right. You know, we actually send the pill. We get a million pills. We send them to the lab and we test them. And it's been ye- literally years since we've seen a pill that was purchased, like our undercover purchased on social media or something, that's had real uh, pharmaceutical ingredients in it. Most of the times, the fake bars, the fake Xanax pills are just fentanyl with some other stuff in them. Sure. So you're giving, you know, you're not giving that. So a, a child is seeking that out to self-medicate and it has deadly consequences. Um, how do you take the stigma away from mental health and how do you empower teenagers to speak to someone about mental health issues? Hey, that's, I wish I had the answer to that. That's kind of <laughs> out of my league. But, but I see that as a major problem where if you asked a parent, you know, where's the safest place to, for your child, they're probably gonna say right here at home. Mm-hmm. And do you know how many cases um, I've seen where a child kisses his mom and dad goodnight, goes upstairs and takes a pill by his or herself in the bedroom and is dead the next morning. Right. Like it's happening every day. And why is that? It's, you know, society's not doing a good enough job at identifying what's causing this teen to, to reach out for those drugs, to seek those drugs out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing, too, is is it, we deal with the media a lot mm-hmm. here. And one thing, the, the, look, the media, for the most part, I, I think does an adequate job. I, I don't think they do a, a good job or a fantastic job at all. Yeah. And one of the reasons being, they'll come in here and they'll do a piece or, or a celebrity has died like we were talking about, mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll, they'll interview us about this. But here's what will happen. They come in, they do the interview, their cameras, that, then as they're talking to me, then their cameras will put B-roll on that goes right to the homeless guy with no teeth living under yeah. the bridge. Yeah. And everybody that's living north of Herndon Avenue shuts off their television. Yep. Or that's yep. not my kid, that's not my family. So there's a mixed message, if that's the right way to say it, that's, that I yeah. think is going on. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Hey, that's that's a fascinating thing you just brought up. Here's what I tell people to try to overcome that. And and if you disagree with me, please tell me, okay. right? Um, I'm 56. 20 years ago, it was easy for us as a society to identify people who were at risk of a drug-caused death because they were the people that were uh, op- suffering from opiate use disorder. They were generally injecting heroin every day. We knew those are the people that were at risk. Um, the game is 100% different today. Now we have, you know, earlier I spoke about experimental drug users, recreational drug users. Now everyone is at that same level of risk. Literally, yes. literally a teenager is at the same risk of death, I would argue, right, and hear me out, is at the same risk of death from uh, fentanyl poisoning as a daily opiate addict. The opiate addict has a tolerance to the drug. The opiate addict is savvy in the drug market, generally knows, uh, has a pretty good idea of what he or she is getting. Sometimes with a teenager, none of that is, 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 is happening. They honestly think it's the deception piece, you know, and, and it's getting smaller, right? We're educating people, and now kids do, I hope, for the most part, know 
that there's fentanyl in these pills, but there are still some kids that think this is a real Xanax, think it's a real uh, perk, and they're taking the pills without even knowing what they are. And, you know, they, they're, they weigh 110 pounds. They've never used an opiate before. How much does it take to kill them compared to uh, the suffering addict who's been taking it every single day for two years, you know? So, so what I say now is if you're taking drugs today, you're at risk. You know, it's not, is you can't just say it's only, like you talked about showing the picture of the homeless people. Yeah, that's a part of the problem. That's always been a part of the problem. We got to do better at getting help for those people. But the problem today and part of the reason why the deaths have escalated exponentially is the other groups that are now at risk. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the simple answer yeah. is yes, I, I, I agree with you. But, uh, but I'm going to even break it down a little bit further. Mm -hmm. And I agree with everything you said. I think the 13, 14, 15-year-old is in that category of not thinking that there's fentanyl in that Xanax. I think, and I hate to even say this, but the, 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 the semi-experienced drug user at 15, 16, and 17 they they don't care that fentanyl's in there. Right. So so we almost have to break this down into categories, like we have to break down treatment. And what I and what I mean by that is that you have you have people with PPO insurances and that can afford the cash to go into treatment facilities. Then you have the homeless or whoever it might be that only have Medi-Cal mm -hmm. for the state of California. As a private treatment facility, we don't take Medi-Cal. We do. We're, we're trying to get it for our outpatient programs, but for inpatient, we can't take it because they pay one hundred eighty dollars a day. Yeah. So, so, so the people, the, the people that have the Medi-Cal, they're not getting a quality of care that they deserve. Mm -hmm. So, so again, it, it's it's everything needs to be, at least in my opinion, needs to be broken down into all these little categories in order for us to address it the, the, the proper way. Yep. And Sacramento is not listening. Right. They're just simply not listening. Right. Well, they, not, not to guys like us. Well, no, uh, of course not. You know, but they're, I don't even think they're listening to, to, no. to, to, to folks like you. No. They just don't care, no. I think, is, is I don't the know issue. what the issue is, but, but what I do know is when I tune out any time someone proposes the one solution that's going to cure everything. Of course. And hey, that can even be law enforcement. That's obviously not the one solution. Right. And how do I know that? I've seen it firsthand. Like, like if I had to say what's most important right now, and we're kind of getting to a tipping point, like you spoke of now, maybe the age is 13, 14 are naive, and they don't know what's in the pills. I wish we could... I wish we could educate everybody so that at least they were empowered with the knowledge to make a decision. If they're making the wrong decision, then you have to address that bucket, Correct. like you're saying. Yeah. But yeah, things need to be broken down like that. And there is no, it, it's not, you know, I get very frustrated when I hear law enforcement isn't the answer, this is the answer. Or that's not the answer, law enforcement is the answer. Everything is the answer. Right. People just need to focus on what they do, what their role is. And, and what and, we do best. That's it. Stay yeah. in your lanes. That's it. And push, you know? Yeah. Exactly. You know, that, that brings up another point. And, and I knew we were going to get to this because I wasn't going to let it go. <laughs> I, I, I think I already know what your opinion is yeah. on putting drug dealers in prison. Yeah. But, give, but yeah, so for we, our listeners, we, we, I, I really want to hear We have this. to do it. And, and, I, and listen, I understand we're in California and, and uh, there is a, a, a group, not even a group, there's a sentiment that we don't want to incarcerate people, period, right? Right. 
here's the reality of drug trafficking and where harm is caused. Um, and I talk about one case in particular, not because I'm like cherry picking this one time this happened. This happens every week. It's just this case is done with. Person pled guilty, been sentenced, so we can talk about it without getting you know, any legal issues. Um, September of 2020 in Pasadena, California, one drug dealer in one weekend caused seven overdoses and three deaths. So what happens next weekend? He got let out. No, what, no, you, no, what happens next weekend? If oh, I, I got law you. enforcement's not going to incarcerate him, what happens right. next weekend? More. 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 Like there is a cycle. See, drug trafficking is not a crime of passion. It's a greed-driven crime, right? So there's a cycle. Greed, harm. Greed, drug trafficking, harm. So unless law enforcement steps in and files a criminal case on that person, and in that case we were very uh, lucky. You know, the local police did a phenomenal job, and we partnered with them to get this person off the street in probably like four or five days. Mm, nice. But there would have been more harm the next weekend. And people have to realize that, that it's not like, hey, this was just a one-time thing and it'll never happen again. You know, it was not a crime of passion. They're going to keep selling drugs until they're stopped. Yeah. And that's where law enforcement has to step in and say, no, you're, I don't care about recidivism. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is you pose a threat to the community. Your behavior has harmed people. Your behavior is not going to stop unless law enforcement intervenes, and that's why the law enforcement piece is so important in this. Absolutely, that that's, is that, that is a great way to put that. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it in in those terms. Well, and we get so frustrated with you. I know you've heard it the decrim, decriminalization, yeah. and it's and and and. Hey, xylazine's not a not, xylazine's not a controlled substance, right. folks. Yeah, right. how's that working out? Yeah, exactly. And it's like I say, like okay, I get it. You you what you're wanting to talk about is that. For the addict themselves, yes, it is not no. a moral failure to be an addict. I get it. Yeah, who I'm disagrees an addict. with that? I yeah, understand. Yeah. But if I went and robbed someone at gunpoint to get my fix, I've just now crimi- committed a criminal act. My addiction doesn't matter at all. This is a real case that I found so disturbing. Right, a person at an in-treatment uh, facility gets orders drugs, orders fentanyl, Mm -hmm. gets it delivered by an Uber. And we charged this case uh, a couple months ago. There was a big media release down in LA. The drugs are delivered by Uber. And there's video of uh, of the treatment facility, like the security cameras outside. You can see the Uber pull up. The guy gets the drugs back inside. He's dead the next morning. Do you want someone on the street that's preying upon people that are in treatment, selling drugs to people that are in treat? Like, what chance does someone have trying to get clean when there's someone that's predatory, right? Who's and that's drug dealer knew this person was at a treatment facility. Right. It's like you know, how can we allow that as a society? How, on the one hand, can you say we got to get people into treatment, but it's okay that this guy is literally sending delivery drivers with fentanyl to the treatment facility? You can't have it like that. Man. No, and 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 yeah. Well, again, I've got my own personal thoughts on what we do to that guy. Yeah, you know. Um, but 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 well, remember the law. I'm, 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 I'm trying. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. But I also have to add just a little something to mm-hmm. that. That treatment center, and I know there's some treatment centers out there that are a little on the shady side. Yep. They're, 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 there's always going to yep. be that. I see there's that too. Be yep. that. But for that treatment center to even allow 
an Uber driver to show up and to knock on that door or to do whatever it yeah. is, to not have that security around that, to even have that client use their phone to make a phone call without somebody at minimum being next to them listening to that phone call. Because at our treatment center, all those protocols are in place. Yep. They can't even make a phone call yep. unless you've been there, I think it's two weeks. And and uh, they can't make a phone call unless there's a staff member next to them. You know, so so again, a breakdown. That's a breakdown. A it's break. a breakdown of their of, of of their system there. But what a shame. Yeah. Because again, folks don't. I mean, you do, and and a lot of a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. They don't understand the addict's brain. They don't understand how it works. I, I was I was going to tell you this a little earlier. You know, if I'm watching, if I, I I've got 23 years in of sobriety. If I'm watching a show of the old Dr. House, remember, remember yeah, that yeah, show? Yeah. Okay. You know, and he reaches in that pocket and he pulls out that bottle of Vicodin and he shakes it a little bit like this. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know that scene is coming. Yeah. You're gonna, and when he does it, I, I'm getting goosebumps right yeah, now. Yeah, I know, man. You're going to get a feeling. Okay. Yeah. I got that feeling. Yeah. Right. But because of 23 years, I know where to take that feeling. Right. Right. If, if, if you're six months in, even a year in, even five years in, sometimes you don't yet know where to take that Wow. And you don't know where to take that feeling, right? And, and, and I guess the, one of the reasons why I'm saying that is that there's no cure for this addiction. And I think a lot of parents think there is when their kids fall into this trap. They're going to go to treatment. 30 days is going to fix them. They're going to come out. And every parent's on board in the beginning. Yeah, Flint, we're going to listen to everything you yeah. have to say. We're going to listen to everything your staff has to say, blah, 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 on and on. And I'm going, time out. I'm going, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. There is no cure. Do you know if I pull up to a gas station today and I'm putting gas in my truck and there's ether and gasoline, yeah. right? You don't smell it very often. Yeah. But what every now and then I catch a whiff of that ether, I gotta move my truck. Because as a kid, I had I had I had 17 surgeries from the time I was born to the time I was 18. Uh -huh. And they used ether in the in the, in the uh, early days. And that takes that memory bank all the way back. Smell is powerful, man. It's powerful. Yeah. And, and that's my point. That, that, that thought process that we have as an opiate addict, it doesn't go away. For some reason, it's, it's, it's the high, it's that sensation that we continually want. Right. Right? We have to learn how to live without that. And it takes time. It takes a lot of time. And, and, and again, nothing against the people, because most people shouldn't know about this, Yeah. but they don't. And that's why I'm not, I'm not just sitting here promoting longer treatment for shits and grins. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm promoting it because it's necessary. If we are going to at least have a shot at helping this generation, we have to be able to not have our hands tied yep. in treatment in order to do it. And then again, what comes first with mental health? Is it the, uh, drug addiction? Is it the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know where you're going with that. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, hey, we've become a society that's very, um, and I, I, I think this is where you were going with that. We become a society that's very trusting of prescription drugs. You bet. And there's a pill for everything. So when you're 15 years old, hey, it's okay to take a pill for this, you know? Right. It's acceptable. I mean, mom's mom's got them in there, the medicine cabinet. Go. She's right. taking them over. Yep. How, how can yep. that hurt me? Yep. Right. Yeah. It's a that's a bigger problem than 
um, I think we all realize, yeah. You bet it is. Yeah. And, and I do want to say this about, about you guys and, and, and DEA and law enforcement in general. You know, when I, when I hear of a bust that, that you're getting 100,000 pills off the street and you, I, and you got some other idiot in the corner over here yeah. going, oh, that's, they're, they're not doing it. They're not, they're not getting it done. Let me tell you something. That 100,000 pills, you good people got off the street. That saved a few lives. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's the way you know, we look at it. That's hey, the way we here's have to the, look at You it. cannot deny that when you reduce the quantity of drugs, you're reducing the harm, yeah. if nothing else, right? So that's what we do. We're reducing the quantity of drugs on the street, and hopefully, I would say empirically, uh, it's proven that when we do that, it reduces the harm. And when I say it's proven, I look back to uh, prescription drugs. The height of prescription opioid uh, abuse, or I guess the, the highest number of prescriptions written for opioids in this country, I want to say it was 2012 or 2013, it was 255 million prescriptions for opiate drugs. You're right. And so what we saw was a lot of people harmed by prescription opioids. As the prescription number came down over, what's it been, 10, 10 11 years since mm -hmm. then, the number of... Uh, of people harmed by prescription opioids went down, but unfortunately, you know, the drug cartels stepped in to fill that void, and they yeah. said, hey, there's a market for these blue M30 pills, the oxy pills that are out there today. Everybody wants them. Let's just create our own and fill that void, and that's, and that's what happened. Yeah. But, you know, we know that reducing the supply of drugs reduces the harm, so we're out there doing that every day, and I appreciate you saying that you feel that that has an impact because everyone that works at DEA, we know that has an impact. And we know that we're saving lives every day by doing that. You well, you, you bet. And you, and you touch on something that I was curious about asking about was, you know, when your career starts, seeing yeah. that evolution out of the opioid crisis. Because, I mean, you know, Flint and I have tracked it. We've seen it, read it in literature and documentaries yeah. and spoken with people to see how that you know, legal supply yeah. dried up and the people turning to that illicit yeah. supply. And this fentanyl crisis is just that next evolution. Th that's it. all it is. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, um, I don't know, savvy maybe, or, uh, entrepreneurial or enterprising mm -hmm. drug traffickers that saw, Hey, this is, a, this product is really in demand, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the pills, um, the supplies being cut, let's step in and make our own and flood the market with them and take over the market. And that's really what they did. And, you know, I look back to, I think Prince was probably the first high profile celebrity that mm -hmm. died, you know, yeah. a blue M30 fentanyl pills. Right. And back then it was like, really, everyone thought they were real, thought, thought it was real pills, you know? Mm -hmm. They didn't know that there was this whole other uh, drug out there, fentanyl. Fentanyl is not new. Oh, it's not. It's not new. No, like, it's not. Like, it, I remember when I first started with DEA, there was a thing called, and, and it's pretty, there's a lot of uh, stuff online about it. It was called Tango and Cash Heroin in New York City. Huh. And what was Tango and Cash Heroin? It was uh, like February of 1991, and there was this heroin that was killing people in New York City. But dozens of people. I mean, now we have that, you know, that, that's nothing now. There's more people dying in New York on a regular weekend today from drugs than this, yet this was a public health emergency there. They had uh, police cars going up and down the street saying, don't use the Tango and Cash heroin, because it's kind of brand named sure. heroin back then. And all it was 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 illicitly manufactured fentanyl in some underground lab in the US mixed with heroin. Mm -hmm. And it killed dozens of people. And people say like, well, how come it didn't kill thousands like today? Volume. 
Fuck. It's like I said, it was just one guy Network. doing it, one thing, and trying this experimental thing. Today, we just have literally thousands of kilos of it coming into our country. Well, you know, and there and and there's there's other drugs out there. Look, most of these drugs were invented, created, yeah. whatever you want to say, back in back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm -hmm. A lot of those drugs are just sitting dormant, mm -hmm. waiting, just waiting for somebody yep. like China to get their their hands on them. Yep. You know. Um, and speaking of that, how 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 much do you think China's role in this plays? It's a huge. It's got to be. It's huge. I mean, you know, most of the precursor chemicals to make uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine come from China. And hey, we're we're talking a lot about methamphetamine, but you alluded to. I mean, I'm sorry, we're talking a lot about fentanyl, obviously, but you mentioned methamphetamine earlier, and from my point of view, I see, I, this is probably going to take some explaining, but I see the harm from methamphetamine being just as great Absolutely. as caused by fentanyl. It's just different harm. Like, you're not dying today. Um, we, we track who dies uh, from drug-caused death and the type of drug that kills them, mm -hmm. and we... You can kind of break it into age groups, and you can see with fentanyl, um, it'll start at 14 years old, and it'll peak around 24 to 35, and then it tapers off, hmm. believe it or not. That's how it is today. That may change over the next 10 years or whatever, but it tapers off. Methamphetamine is different. It starts slower, but it just can, like 35, then straight to 45, straight to 55. Right. You're taking that drug for 15, 20 years, you're addicted. And it's not killing you today, but what is it doing? You're going to have oh. mental health issues. You're going to be homeless. It's going to create all the other social issues that we see, you know, in our community right now. That's right. methamphetamine. That's right. doing that for us, you know. Right. It might not kill you today, but it'll wreck your life, and it'll be just as great a cost on society, what that drug does to you. You bet. Yeah. We, we, we say in, in, in recovery, there are worse things to us addicts than death, <clears throat> and one of them is long-term addiction. Yep. Because there are people, I mean, I went 20, I went over 20 years with my addiction, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was 20 years. I mean, you know, you, you can live through most of it, right? And then, but there always comes that point, I call it the imaginary line, where you, when you cross that line, you know you're now in it. Yeah. You're now in it for the duration. And, and, and you don't know how to get out of it at that point. Yeah. And so you, you, you keep going. I mean, there were times when I would pray for death because it was because my, my day was, you know, I, I had a legal support service business. So that means I was serving subpoenas. I was mm -hmm. serving kickout orders, summons and complaints, doing court filings for every attorney west of the Mississippi River, right? And I had a staff and all that. But I had to do that. And I had to get 70 pills a day. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. It was it was it was this. Here's right? something I heard. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when I meet someone who's been in recovery for 20, 25 years now, I ask them this question. I say, if you were using today with fentanyl out there, what would happen? And they just say, I'd be dead. I'd be dead. And you think the same thing. Same, yeah, same yeah. thing. I, I mean, yeah. that's Absolutely what everybody no tells me. Yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. No yeah. it, it, another, another thing that I've heard is, so speaking to someone who used heroin regularly, right, and said, hey, I was a heroin addict but I could function. I could hold down a job, I could go to work. When I couldn't get heroin anymore and I started using fentanyl, I could not 
hold down a job anymore. And I don't know if it's because the high is different and you have to use much more frequently or whatever the case, but they just said, hey, it changed for me when I started using fentanyl, even from heroin to fentanyl. Here's it why. Was, yeah. Here's why. First, first of all, the, the, the statement that was made that I was a functioning addict, <clears throat> we're never a functioning addict. We have, we have moments of functioning. But again, here comes that imaginary line where once you go over that, you're, you're not functioning. And I'm talking about like the last, the, the, I don't know the time frame, the last, you know, if you put it in four quarters, it'd be the fourth quarter that you are no longer functioning, but you think you are. So you are still working. You are still doing those things, just not doing it well. But with fentanyl, because it's so short acting, see heroin's uh, last longer. Mm -hmm. Right. Fentanyl short acting. That means we have to have more and more of it. If I if I took fentanyl right now at whatever time it is, eleven o'clock. Yeah. Um, by twelve fifteen. Yeah. Maybe even a little earlier, I would I'd have to use again. Okay. So so now what happens is that you're you're on that you're on the clock. Everything time means everything in addiction. Time means everything, all the way up to when it stands still. And, and, and what I mean by that is in between your, your, this is very difficult to explain, but if I'm in bed and I took my last dose at 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. and now it's 12 a.m. Mm -hmm. and I'm starting to go through some minor withdrawal symptoms, because I know I can't get any until the next morning. I'm not gonna sleep, I'm going into withdrawals, everything's discombobulated, everything's upside down, and I think I fall asleep for a little bit. And I wake up and I look at the clock and it's 12.01. Oh. No. That's what I mean by time stands still wow. between the using when you are neck deep in it. Right. Well, and then from the people we've spoken to when it comes to like the benzo dope, you know, it gives it the longer leg. The longer legs. And xylazine too. And xylazine that's the other thing legs, like that yeah. people, you know, again, when we talk about like being a little, um, I think there's a perception that some people have the perception that the opiate use, the fentanyl user doesn't want to use xylazine. And I'm like, no, actually the fentanyl user does want to use xylazine uh -huh. because that's going to get them through the next couple hours. Absolutely. And that's uh, like one of the frustrations I have is that, you know, like, hey, we need to test for xylazine. And it's, it's like the people want it. That That's the issue. You need to just understand that if you're using fentanyl and you're down that road, you, you're probably gonna want a benzo or a xylazine mixed with it. Right. Yeah, and the, the consequence of, you know, a limb starting to oh, rot or anything, it's, it's it doesn't, gruesome, it man. doesn't, it's, it, what, I forget which one we were watching and the ladies, you know, talking with the gentleman trying to clean up the yeah. wounds and, it, and it's not even in his head. It's like, yeah. he, he understands that this is what's gonna occur, but it's not even in there, the consequence, that part of the brain is off. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and 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 I don't know if you heard this prior prior to I was telling these guys that, um, and in treatment now what that does is is because fentanyl is mixed with xylazine and mm -hmm. with and, and with benzos, in treatment now we we have to have two or three different protocol detoxes because mm. you can't you can't detox it the same. They're, That's they're, interesting. They're, they're separate. They're separate drugs. They're, right. they're They're separate makeups to those drugs. Right. You know, so and, it makes it even tougher. Yeah, and and you know, like I said, ben, um, 
xylazine, not a scheduled drug, so technically right. not illegal by federal standard. Right. There's a lot of benzos now that are designer benzos that are not actually scheduled, that are, quote, mm-hmm. legal, like uh, atizolam. Um, there's a couple other ones that we don't see them too much. Like, we don't see benzos. And remember, when this is a caveat I have to give people because a lot of times they'll ask me about what's in the drug supply chain. Remember that we work primarily at the wholesale level, right? And a lot of these cocktails, like uh, xylazine being mixed with fentanyl, a lot of time that's done very close to street distribution. Mm. So sometimes we don't have the best visibility on that. Um, With pills, though, uh, and it stays consistent throughout the United States, uh, about 8% of the pills have uh, xylazine in them right now. So fentanyl and xylazine, and again, it's to give it that little bit of extra, mm-hmm. you know, to make Life. it to make it maybe seem a little bit more like an oxy would seem, you yeah. know. Have you have you guys ever seen a drug called soma out there? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah that was the big. There used to be. A, I'd drug. see if I can get this right. There was a drug called the holy. There was a combination called the holy trinity, which was an opiate, a benzo, and a muscle relaxant, which is what soma, soma is. Yeah. And and you know what that was kind of a red flag when we see a doctor prescribe all three to somebody, yeah. we'd say, hmm, this is probably someone we need to look at. But that was the big thing what, 12, 15 years ago to get those three drugs. Yeah. I'll tell you yeah. what, in, in in the late nineties and wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I I literally would walk I'd I'd drive to Mexico. I'd tell my family I had to go serve subpoenas down in LA. And I'd <laughs> and keep going. going. Yeah. I just well, you know what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And you know, and I'd cross the border, uh, and 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 I, I'd load my pockets up with. You really couldn't get Vicodin in the, in right. the pharmacy, is that? But yeah. everybody thinks you can, but you really couldn't then. I don't know about now, yeah. but uh, I'd load my pockets up with Soma for a penny a piece, you know, and and bring back pocket loads. Yeah. And hey, and that that that's scary. Stuff kicks your yeah. butt. That's scary today because hey, we have like the reason we have. Yeah. So part of DEA's job, I think everybody knows that we work the illicit drug problem, right? Um, criminal cases. We also have regulatory responsibility. We kind of alluded to it earlier, talking about buprenorphine and everything. Right. So there are there are protocols or procedures set up in this country. You're, in, in order to get a controlled substance, you have to visit a doctor. A lot of times that has to be in person. You're going to get a prescription. You go to a pharmacy, you're going to hand them that prescription, or it's going to get sent electronically. You're going to get dispensed the drug. They're going to match the ID, whatever. A lot of foreign countries, none of those protections exist. Right. So people will go there like you did back in the day and, um, hey, you don't know what you're going to get. Like there's no like, you know, don't purposely circumvent the protections that we have here because there's a reason that we have them. I'll leave it at that. Right. And what scares me a lot of times is is the older generation, you know, that they're going into Mexico to get, you know, to get their 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 insulin or to get, you know, vitamins, whatever it is. My God, can you imagine what happens if somebody finds fentanyl in a a vitamin that some 80 year old bought? Yep. Holy Moses. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a whole nother disaster that could come. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Not good. Scary time. It is. It is. God, Bill, this has been great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is... I learned a lot. I, I See, I like talking to people um, who have real-life experience in treatment. And I think that's uh, a real important connection to make is law enforcement and treatment because we can talk about what we're kind of seeing, but you can talk about the effect it's having. And, you know, a lot of the things I even talked about today were from talking with people who used drugs right and and you know the challenges as the drug supply changed how their day-to-day life changed and their challenges changed and 
and the fight to get to stay uh, sober changed. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. And that's that's kind of the re- well, it's not kind of it's the relationship we have around here, around, yeah. around the valley with with law enforcement and my good buddy sitting over there. Yeah, you know they call me, I call them. I'll vouch for them; they're good men. They're, 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 they're good men. Yes, <laughs> right. absolutely, they are. Um, but no, we we we've got that relationship. Yeah. you know, and if they need to ask a question or if I need to, and it's and it and it works out really yeah. well. Good. You know, we just hope we can just get this message even. I know. Hammer at home. And, and hey, so, so let me ask you one more thing along those lines. Like, what, what is the message that's proper for teenagers today? Is it, is it one of, because I heard you say earlier, hey, uh, you can't just say no, right? Is it one of, I, I'd like to think, or where I kind of feel it is, and tell me if I'm wrong, is you're just, you got to give them information, empower them to make informed decisions. And then, like I said, if they make a bad decision, that's a different issue. You know, then you kind of have to tailor the message more toward those people that have made the bad decisions. But what do you tell, what do you tell teenagers today, do you think, that's going to be successful in uh, keeping them away from the danger? You know, when I speak in the classes, I just present my story. Mm-hmm. And I present to them, there's all these options out here. And like you said, there's empowering decisions and disempowering decisions. And it's tough. It's tough to, like I said, if it's the, you know, there's certain students and when I talk to them, I go, okay, the, you know, pretty good home life for the mm-hmm. most part. Or, mm-hmm. you know, every home life, any teenager that goes, my parents are perfect. It's right. like, oh, God, they're not leaving the house anytime soon. Right. But for the ones that the hardest is those that the home life is the biggest issue. But I just try to present to them, look, you, you have these options. And you don't have to follow the path that was laid out to you. Yeah. And the hardest thing to convince them is, look, somebody put some bullshit in your head long ago when you're sitting and you're talking about yourself terrible, and you don't have to carry on that voice. And so I think for them is trying to present, you can find good community. You could find people doing positive things. Uh-huh. You don't have to go this route of acting a fool. I don't know how else to put it yeah. for them. But the decision's well, going to be so, yours, so, and I think a lot of them don't believe that if they screw up, that there's anyone they can go to that's lacking judgment. It's just like, okay, let, let's let's figure this out. I think the first thing that when when, when you're addressing students, I, like I said, I've been doing this a long time. They want to be talked to like adults. Yep. So you talk to them like adults, and you never tell them you have to do this. It's more of, I'm letting you know, just like I said earlier, I'm letting you know what's going to happen to you if you decide to go down this road. And then all the in-between pieces are, you, you, it's so important, these kids want to, they, uh, this is the only way I can put it, they wanna hear the, the, the gore. They wanna hear the blood and guts. Mm-hmm. There is, there has never been an audience of kids that I've had that I have that I haven't been able to control by telling my story. And you can't mince words with them. These kids are not the kids of the fifties, sixties, and seventies right. anymore, right? And I think there's still teachers out there and parents out there that don't that think they are. Right. These kids are bright. They're 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 extremely intelligent. And then, of course, on the other side, they're dumb as rocks. But <laughs> if you continue to if you continue to to undermine them, you're not you're not going to get anywhere. You just got to f- tell them the truth. Right. 
because that's what they that's what they want to hear. I've I've had, and I'm just not saying this. I've had more kids come up to me afterwards to say thank you for telling that story. And again, it it it's it, it's it's because I'm everybody's grandpa age now. Yeah. Right. So I don't I don't talk a lot into into high schools anymore. I still do if yeah. asked. Right. But it's all about eyeballing them. I will I pick kids out of the crowd. I will walk right up to if I'm in a gym. Yeah. I will walk right up to them. I'll point at them. I, I, I there were two kids at Buchanan High School one time that were dicking around up in up in the audience and there's 2,500 kids in there. I stopped the entire thing. I said I'm going to wait for you two. I said it's obvious you have something more important to say. They shut up and it was dead silence in the place. And I had kids doing this, leaning over and listening. Again, not it's my method. It's just yep. not because of me, yep. but it's 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 the method. Treat them like adults they're going to listen well, now and if you and, and again my philosophy if we save one kid yeah we did our job yep. yeah well and i think it's yeah flint you bring a good point don't insult their intelligence but let them know there's greater wisdom ahead i think that's a good way to kind of what, what does that mean the, the second part of that there's greater wisdom ahead what do you mean? i mean <laughs> how unwise were we in our oh, teenage yeah, right, years right, right, about right, right, yeah, about right. life yeah. and everything else yeah. you know i had a had some challenges with my own kids and I said, look, you know, you're, you're 14 and 13 and I'm only as wise as a parent 14 years, you know, so I'm learning as it's <laughs> going to. That's a good too, way to put it. Yeah. You know, so I have a lot of life wisdom, but when it comes to some parenting things, eh, you know, yeah. I'm still learning. So I think it's, it's kind of, I mean, what do they say? W wisdom is where your intelligence meets application. And so I think they're not yet down that road right. far enough. Some are. Some are amazingly switched on. I mean, I know, Flint, you've spoken. I've spoken to kids that have oh, yeah. already been oh. in and out of treatments. Wow. You know, you 15, 16, 17 years old. One more question for you guys. What role, because like I said, my experience is that I, especially with teenagers, a lot of it starts with mental health issues. What role does social media play in that world? Huge. Boom. Yeah. Huge. Boom. Um What's the best way to make it short? I I know we both have had situations with it, but I try to explain them. Stop comparing your inside feelings to somebody's outside, per, their, your perception of their outside. I said I've dealt with celebrities where it's like, oh, you know, uh, this person could be a little late to the interview. They they had to do a shoot and talking to the person, very nice looking lady, and she goes, yeah, I was uh, taking pictures on this boat. Well, then looking, and I'm like, oh, you own a boat? No, no, no. See, my agent, it's his friend, and he prom promised to just fill up some gas, so we got the thing. I'm like, it's all BS. Right. right. You're, you're sitting here and looking at these people, and I said, I've known some very wealthy people that are miserable. Right, and I've right. known some people that come home from work stinking to high heaven, and they're the happiest people on the planet. Right. Stop comparing what you see to what you're feeling inside. Right. And and it's just it it is, and and it, and it gives the opportunities for them to be. I don't have any other words. Greater assholes to each other. Right. right. You know, it just <laughs> right. does. Just it, what we need. Yeah. Right. It used yeah. to be. I used to have to have Bill, the, the kid that bullied me when I was little, come up to me. I you know didn't mean, but his name was Bill. He had to do that in person. Nowadays, they can sit yeah. and hide behind their computer and right. create fake accounts and their phones right. and everything like else. It's just that. And, and that's the thing I, 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 along those lines, like I tell parents, like right now, it, so it used to be if a parent wanted to know who their kid was friends with, it's like who came to the door or look out in the backyard, who's out there. 
now AI is suggesting that's the reality that you know AI is suggesting mm-hmm. who your child should be friends with mm-hmm. and just know it's okay but you better vet you know you better vet and understand like why that suggestion is being made and and the other thing like w- specific with drugs is people will say parents will say well my kid never like looks at that drug content on on social media he doesn't have to like search for it just be if his friends look at it and if those friends are physically at the same location with him in a school all day that algorithm is going to push that content to him so he's going to be subjected to it so you have to have the conversation with him about that you know absolutely yeah Yeah, well and think about it too i I don't remember oh we were joking with that about alonzo Bowden. we had the comedian on Mm -hmm. and uh and i said yeah back in the day i used to have to call you know hi hi mr anderson is (laughs) is kimberly there it's like not anymore you know parents don't even vet the relationships and you know it's a lot of these challenges it's uh but hey, one, one closing thing, it, you kind of, it, it made me think of it earlier when you talked about you played golf and there was a young lady who's going on a golf scholarship. Yeah. My wish for kids is they find something in life they're passionate. And this isn't a saying that I came up with. I think I heard Chris Angel say this, the magician. He said to kids, find something in life you're passionate about. Don't let drugs distract you from that passion and don't ever let drugs become your passion. And when you look at mm-hmm. the lives of people, you can see when they, you know, if they made missteps and, you know, hey, uh, this person was had a passion, but then they got distracted by drugs, then it just became all about drugs. You can really see that that happen. So, you know, when, when I hear that someone's going to college uh, to play golf at college, you know that they have a passion for it. And that's... There's nothing worse than you know, wasted talent. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing yeah. worse than wasted talent. Yep. yep. That's, and we're going to try to, we're going to try to change that with a few kids. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'd like to close on a question for you. So yep. how do organizations such as ourselves, obviously Flint's incredibly active, but even the average citizen lean into supporting yeah. folks I mean, like we, you? So we have a, a whole toolkit available online, online um, dea.gov slash one pill. And it's like PSA messages that there's no proprietary rights to, so anybody can grab them, use them. Um, it's a lot of printed material. It's emoji decoders to help parents decode that that yep. language that we don't speak, you know, that kids <laughs> do speak. Uh, it's a lot of stuff like that. Now, if they want to do some in-person stuff, just call your local DEA office and talk. If you're part of an organization, call your local DEA office, talk about what you want to do, and ask to speak to someone about potential potentially partnering with them and getting the message out because it's super important. Yeah. No, you thank it. you for that because yeah. I think we've gotten so into a weird mode over these last six or seven years. You know, I bought a, a police officer coffee the other day in the line of Starbucks and he threw his lights on and I'm like, wait, what did I do? Are my tags out? And he just, he, and I got, he comes to the window and goes, oh, I thought that was you. And it turns out I knew him and he goes, thanks. Right, right. Sometimes uh, law enforcement just needs to no, appreciate yeah. what yeah, you're doing. Yeah. We know it's tough for you guys out there. Thank you. Well, hey, I pre- thank you. Thank you for the thanks. And also thank you for you guys for actually um, trying to help people heal, keeping them in recovery. Um, you know, that's saving lives. You got it. Hey, here's the thing. I, I, with fentanyl now, you're either going to get help or what's going to happen. You're going to die. There you go. That's it. That's it. Mr. Anderson. Thanks, Bill. That's Thank all you, I, guys. Man, you're the best. I'm yeah. not kidding. I appreciate I, it. I appreciate you. Yep. All right. Thanks, Thank you. Sir. Take care. 
If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction.